Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully, everybody's doing well. Uh, I have. I'm going on the road again. I've got clients throughout New York this next couple of weeks, and I'm going to be working and cutting timber on a few clients. And, you know, I've had a good chance based on the last couple of podcasts to think more thoroughly about topics. We did soil health last week, and I kind of broke down some of the natural amendments, things that I think about. We're going to talk more about food plots coming up, I'm trying to take a different perspective on things. You know, nothing is in the box. Everything's out of the box. And we're trying to not have, I guess, different opinions, but taking as many opinions as we can to get kind of a better perspective on things. Today, I'm excited because we're going to talk about turkey habitat. Not too long ago, we talked about grouse habitat. Uh, myself and Todd Waldron kind of broke down how to develop habitat on the landscape for grouse. We're going to talk about turkeys today. You know, I've had a d- different perspective. I'm in the northern latitudes. I'm dealing with northern hardwood forest. It's a little bit different from some of the other savannas or you know, southern pines. So there's a difference in how we approach based upon indicator plants or plants in the landscape. But it's thinking more in depthly about how to optimize your property for turkeys. Turkeys have big ranges. You know, their summer ranges and fall ranges are different. And thinking a little bit more obscurely about that point and kind of identifying what areas of improvement that you can make. I have some opinions. I've done some work on the landscape, some implementation work. So I have some thoughts on this, but I'm, I'm certainly not the expert. So I have got somebody who's much more knowledgeable than me on this podcast. So uh, let me get him on the line. Hey, Marcus, are you in the line? Yep, I'm here. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. So Marcus Leslie's on the line. I've listened to your podcast. I want you to tell me a little bit about your podcast, a little bit about you, where you're located, and uh, we'll go from there. Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm the, one of the co-hosts of Wild Turkey Science. And that, that podcast, it was the original idea of it was for us to deliver information to people on the science of wild turkey management and ecology. And we have a whole bunch of studies going on all over the United States. There's some up in, in uh, your neck of the woods, up in the Northeast as well. And the idea was not only that we could we go through some of the existing literature base and connect people to what we know about turkeys, but also connect people to the ongoing research in these different places, why it, you know, it was uh, originally developed and what we're learning from it in more real time. And all of that was really in response to some Uh, concerning data that we've had, particularly in the southeastern United States, but uh, in many parts of the range of wild turkey and several subspecies, we've had some uh, indicators that there's a decline, and a lot of the research has been spawned in in, uh, response to that, trying to understand what are the underlying factors that are affecting populations. So that's kind of the idea that, that Will Goolsby and I initially came up with and when we were looking for ways to make that happen we actually partnered with turkeys for tomorrow which is a a a conservation organization nonprofit focused on turkeys and uh they they liked the idea and and uh partnered with us and and allowed us to make that thing happen so that's how that all came to be and uh, it's been a big part of my program. I'm based here at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida, and I've done 
extensive work, particularly habitat management re- related work on game species. And most of that work has been in the southeast, but I have done some work up in the the uh, north northeast and up in the the uh, Midwest as well. So, you know, uh, kind of bounced around and, and worked on a variety of topics in different areas, but most of it has been grounded in habitat management. Yeah, that's great background on you. And I have listened to you for quite a few years. Uh, you and Craig Harper are just interesting, yeah. interesting guys to listen to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, and it, it certainly helps somebody in practice, you know, consulting or providing recommendations on the landscape. So I, I appreciate all the input. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about goals. And yeah. goals could be as simple as, well, we want to increase, uh, we'll say, we'll say habitat for pulse, or mm-hmm. we could create, you know, better nest success or better reproductive opportunities and field settings, or, uh, sure. you know, we want to increase the volume of turkeys on the landscape. Now we're thinking a little bit mm-hmm. macro level. So when you're coming up with these goals and thinking about the ideal city, most people, if you started with the basics, they want to see more turkeys. Um, and then mm-hmm. they want more turkey hunting opportunities. In that case, and in most cases, we're worried about population. And the dynamics of that population, you know, is, is really critical to kind of this evolution of how we're going to manage the landscape. And we can both probably safely say that 80% of our success is going to probably boil down to handling or managing the habitat in some capacity. Sure. That number is probably sure. variable, but in generally that's probably the numbers we're going to work off of. So mm-hmm. I'm going to start with the basics and it could be, you know, site specific or location specific, you know, regional specific from it comes to when it comes to a nesting site, in your opinion, mm-hmm. depending on the forest setting that you're dealing with. And, and in my case, it's Northern hardwood forest, but in in the forest that Mm -hmm. you're most familiar with, how do you create a great nest success situation comparably to guess, you know, a lot of places they're dealing with, I guess, mismanaged forests or uh, invasive plants in shrubland areas. You know, what, what are ideal settings Mm -hmm. and ideal, I guess, descriptions of of what those are like? I'm kind of interested in your point of view. Yeah. Well, I I think it, it, it certainly applies to upland hardwood forests and, and pine forest as well, one of the principal things that is needed to develop a high-quality structure in the understory for nesting is sunlight. And if you're in a closed canopy forest condition where the system is light-limited, one of the quickest ways that you can stimulate plant communities and, and start to develop that structure that you're looking for is by releasing some sunlight into the, to the understory. So that could come through a variety of means, but that's, that's the limiting factor. And it really doesn't resonate with people most of the time when I'm talking to them about this. It's for some reason more intuitive to people if they think about like Western Texas, for instance, water is limiting there. So if, it, if you get just a little bit of rain, you know, the plant community explodes. Well, the same is true in the east. It's just a different resource that's limiting the plant community response. And that generally in these systems is light. So if, that's what I'm initially thinking at the really basic level. So I'm trying to develop nesting cover or, you know, other components that we'll talk about that you mentioned, light is what I'm thinking about principally first. Yeah, that makes sense. So, Marcus, when I think of deer, we typically use the threshold of 50 inches and below. And, you know, when we're talking turkeys and we're talking cover, food, et cetera, when we're talking mm-hmm. turkeys, we're, we're talking one to three feet in a normal, you know, a normal basis. Mm-hmm. So when we're developing nesting habitat or structure on the landscape, vegetative structure. Let's yeah. get into some of the specifics of where you've seen nests, why, what are the mm-hmm. indicators on the landscapes that would create that? How, how do we develop kind of that nest success scenario? Yeah. So uh, I've actually been a part of, and I've and, uh, been privy to information from a variety of projects that have looked at where hens to decide to nest in multiple systems, including some upland hardwood. And generally what we're looking in for in, in uh, 
the understory is principally that it's a developed understory. So if you're in a, you know, that forested system, you have enough light to support that plant community. And it typically will be some mixture of herbaceous plants like grasses and forbs with some woody structure as well. So it's, you know, uh, not completely herbaceous dominated, but there generally is a component of, of herbaceous one of the really interesting studies uh, we just covered recently on our podcast, uh, they from the Tennessee work, they actually tracked where the hens were nesting and then looked at what that composition looked like and how it influenced nesting success. And the interesting thing that came from it was exactly what we were just describing, where you have that mixture of herbaceous and woody cover. So think about uh, if you were in a field uh, up where you're at, it'll take a little longer to get to this stage. But if you have grasses and forbs mixed in and then some shrubs start to colonize, you start to get that shrubby structure in it. That, that's really where a, a large portion of their nests were in that study. And when they occurred in that, that scenario, the nesting success was substantially higher. In fact, it was like twice as high as it was in the poorer areas where they were finding nests, which were more typically those closed canopy forest conditions or uh, fields that were dominated by some sort of non-native grass. So in either of those scenarios, the nesting success was far less. If we take that to another system to give you a vision of that, uh, one of the studies that I was a part of, we were in Pine Savannah, and this was in the Carolinas, and in that situation, we had this really open forest type in the uplands that was being burned frequently. So the cover was really heavily dominated by, by herbaceous cover. But as you transition down into the bottom ones, because of the higher productivity and the less frequent fire, we got into that transition ecotone area. Mm-hmm. And that was more a mix of that herbaceous and, and uh, woody structure that i'm talking about and in that study the nesting success was in was up in the 60 uh 60s in terms of percent uh, survival of the nest to hatching which is about three times or almost three times what we have been seeing in these studies across the range of turkeys so the nesting success in that kind of situation is substantially higher than what we would expect when you don't have high-quality nesting cover around. And in most cases, that includes herbaceous cover mixed in with some sort of shrubby component, you know, with regenerating trees. So let me, uh, let me step through this a little bit. So in the north, depending on the, the nesting period, and we could have nesting earlier uh, where there's very little herbaceous material, so you're relying on woody structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, could be yep. canes, uh, could be shrubs, um, you know, small trees, right, falling over dead wood, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that structure is very meaningful during certain periods of the year. And then sure. once you hit mid-May, at least, again, in the northern latitudes, you start to get that herbaceous layer, that grassy component comes on. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you're dealing with, you know, a lot of uh, non-preferential fescues are very typical. Sure. Some of those grass types. And you're talking about grasses and sedges. And in this case, you know, you may have some standing broom sedge that's been previously mm-hmm. there. There's a structure. So you're starting to think about these elements, at least just physical structure for protection purposes on the landscape. Now, let me yeah. just add another piece to this. I think I talked to Chamberlain about this maybe a couple of years ago. And I said, well, typically deciduous structure old hardwood settings, you know, they're good for certain times of year, but this, this distance from these field settings, because a lot of times I think in nest success scenarios, you've got this structure and this, the shape and size of the structure is meaningful, meaning that Mm -hmm. the particular nest is, is hidden. It's, it's concealed. It's camouflaged. So when we develop deer habitat, we're thinking along those lines of how to create the right amount of structure, the spacing of that structure. Can you be a little more specific? Like I've seen, I've seen uh, nesting locations that are in the open hardwoods. I've mm-hmm. also seen nest areas that are in like almost impenetrable huts of just thrown over vegetation. 
um, that's mm-hmm. just degraded over time. You would think what they call rabbitat or rabbit huts. I've seen them nest sure. within those areas. So mm-hmm. what have you seen on the landscape that would be kind of ideal? If somebody could go out there and kind of create nesting areas, what, what would that look like? Or what could you do physically utilizing structure? And I know this is time of year contingent. So I'm, I'm kind mm-hmm. of, I want maybe a little more detail in that sure. respect. Well, to, to address one of the things, it, it's been said, but and I've heard various uh, turkey researchers say this, that, that turkeys are weak nest site selectors. And I think that that, uh, that is confusing in some ways, but it's also uh, enlightening in others. So what we will see very commonly in a lot of these nesting studies, and uh, Chamberlain would know as well or better than anybody, the nest site selection, you will see a wide range of places where hens nest in these studies. So they're not all picking what we would characterize as ideal structure. So, you know, the one thing that, that I commonly, when I'm working with, with landowners, one thing that I'm bringing to their attention is just because you find a nest somewhere does not mean that that is a good place to nest. So <laughs> keep that in mind good when point. you see nests. Uh, you know, just because you see one, I think that's important. You know, it seems it's obvious once you tell people, but uh, I think we do that a lot. We see nests in places and then assume that's the place to nest. And that may not, you know, it may just be that, that good nesting areas are suitable or that hen may just be bad at it. Uh, some of Chamberlain's work, he, he was talking recently, I was asking him about it, and he's, he literally said some hens just seem to be bad at it. <laughs> you know, uh, the same hens might produce the majority of poles, and they just seem to be really good. They choose good places. and But when I'm talking about good nesting cover, I'm looking at, in these studies, the nests that are in particular areas that perform much better in terms of their survival compared to other areas that are available in the landscape. So I think that's one thing that sometimes is confusing to people. They hear, oh, well, a hen will nest everywhere. That does not mean that everywhere is equal for nesting. So keep that in mind. With that being said, some of the work uh, suggests that the hens, they don't like to nest near each other. So one key aspect, you know, is when you're trying to design your landscape, make sure that you have multiple places set aside for the same purpose. So in other words, if you're trying to create nesting cover, that's one key element that I don't think is always thought of, is to make sure that you have high quality nesting cover in different places. So with that being said, uh, I'm trying to hold on to your question. I think you were asking me how to design those or like the size or the practices to use. Yeah. I mean, you, with whitetails, for example, we, we have thresholds of what a bed, what slope they're on. I mean, the Mm -hmm. the volume of structure, the height of the structure, the density of the structure, just just your opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think, uh, in terms of what, what I'm typically thinking about, especially if you have a lot of terrain like you do there, you know, if we're looking at south-facing slopes or places that you can get a higher, you know, higher uh, penetration of light, a lot of times and more in the south, we're using the, the some of these forest management practices like forest and improvement or shelter wood harvest or some sort of harvesting regime like that to increase sunlight penetration. We also commonly will use fire to stimulate those. I know uh, that may not be a tool available to you depending on where you're at in Mm -hmm. your part of the world, but we're trying to promote that, that understory response of the herbaceous and woody cover and Generally, I'm thinking of an acre or two of that as sort of a, the low end of how much you would have in that patch. So, and think about in in that structure, we're really looking for something that is traversable. You know, it's not like what you uh, what you call it the the impenetrable rabbit rabbit tatter. Yeah, uh, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you you don't want it to be that dense so that it's not traversable 
for turkeys, but uh, you do want a high degree of visual obstruction. And then think about it from the perspective of the hand. So we want it to be an obstruction of vision from a predator's point of view to her, but such that it's something that she can see out of or over. So think of, you know, think about what the height of vegetation looks at and from a hand's perspective. A lot of the time she will actually have a visual line over that cover. You know, we're talking about just a couple of feet tall. So that's where the visual obstruction where she can hide in that, but she can also see over it. And then that'll become even more important when she is brooding. So we'll see high use of that. In terms of what the nest sites actually look at, I, I talked with Craig Harper about this quite a bit when, when they were doing the Tennessee work. One of the most important components that they were choosing in that type of structure that we've been describing is they will actually select a place that has some overhead cover from one of those shrubs. And that was a pretty important predictor in terms of the success of the nest. And, uh, you know, so having some uh, taller vegetation uh, interspersed within that is okay, I guess is what I'm getting at. You know, they will choose to, to nest under that, but, uh, it's really a balance trying to make sure that it's traversable, but it's also providing you a high degree of visual obstruction from the predator standpoint, you know, that her, obstructing their view of her. And really, I, I think that's one thing that's been, that's come to light from a lot of these studies, that hen is most vulnerable while she's on the nest or while she's brooding. So that cover to protect her is your principal concern. So making sure that that she can can uh, you know avoid being detected from some of these visual these larger predators you know you, you mentioned uh, coyotes earlier be making sure that she can conceal herself from those predators is critical and you think about if she gets killed that's a lifetime of reproduction that nest is really less consequential overall to your population than that hen is. So when I'm thinking about, you know, trying to provide that that sort of structure, I'm really trying to make sure that she has the concealment cover that she needs to make sure that she's successful. And I've seen quite, quite a few nests in upland hardwoods where you can see the hen from 20 or 30 yards away sitting on a nest, you know, that's just not putting her in a good situation. So that's what I'm trying to accomplish is making sure that we have patches of vegetation, you know, even if it's an acre or two uh, where we have that higher density vegetation that she can conceal herself in. And, I'm, you know, that's what I'm trying to provide in many locations so that we accommodate the, this apparent competition between hens where they don't want to nest near each other. So let me add a little curveball into this because you've really got me thinking more. Is there an element of thermal to consider in this design? I like the overhead for concealment, but is there mm-hmm. also an element for reducing dampness, uh, you know, for the hen specifically? She produces an aromic, I would say, smell to her mm-hmm. uh, because of that. Is there is there another consideration there? Um, would you have a thermal component coniferous tree? I mean, I guess you could probably build a roof um not to sound you know (laughs) people do crazy things right so yeah yeah. just to just to add to that is there is there an element of that to consider well i i I definitely i I do not think she's scentless so i certainly think that plays a role in it and one of the things that's kind of interesting about that now that you've got me thinking about it is i suspect if you are creating a you know if you're if you're using some sort of forest stand improvement, I suspect you're elevating the temperature, which mm-hmm. should make it should make air rise there, right? So you actually may be benefiting her from that standpoint just by having the higher sunlight. You know that uh, it should pull air in and you know send a column up, which is kind of an interesting thought. Yeah, I would I would also think the soil type would be another consideration. We, I deal with this mm-hmm. with, with deer, all right, and you're looking at. You know, sure. just just the infiltration, right? And water right. infiltration, and considering that on the landscape, so mm-hmm. there there's probably a, a strategy 
to, to building these and ideal scenarios. And, and like, I liked your point is don't pay attention to the, the obvious because sometimes the obvious is, is absolutely incorrect. Um, it's thinking right. more about these individual elements that you could kind of broke down and concealment. Sure. Let, let me get off nesting for a second because th- that was okay. pretty, pretty involved. Let's, let's go to kind of brooding habitat. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that's the next phase of this is, you know, animals need to be fed and uh, to, to develop and insect life is critical. There's ideal mm-hmm. environments. And I, I want to think, you know, generally speaking, we've got these upland forest settings, you know, we're talking springtime, early summer months, What's brooding habitat like um, from a design layout standpoint? What are the ideal scenarios? And, and I want to look at it from a, a hen standpoint and our poult standpoint, because, mm-hmm. it, you know, the, the, the poults can get into really small areas where the hen is a, a little more limited, you know, yeah. f- physically she's more limited. So thinking through that a little bit more in depthly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think one of the most important points and, and something that, that has really opened my eyes is, thinking about that poult right once it hatches in about the first 10 days of life that is the that's a real bottleneck on survival right there and we see it in a, a bunch of studies that the uh, studies up in the or, or the data from the some of the northern states is showing a little better poult per hen ratios than what we're seeing in the south and in the midwest so that's a good sign but uh w- one of the the things that has been eye-opening to me with some of the research is we don't often have poult rearing cover in high quality across the landscape, and particularly in the south, several of the studies are showing that it's basically non-existent on the landscape here. Hmm. Uh, so that's a, of concern. But the other problem is that when we do have it, it's not juxtaposed to nesting cover, such that once the hen hatches that, that poult, they don't have to travel very far to find high quality brood rearing cover. And I think that that is a, a real important thing when you're thinking about design is making sure that you're pairing those two things together because this, you know, this little thing, it, it can't thermoregulate once it hatches and, you know, for about 10 to 14 or 15 days, that. You know, it's not thermoregulating. It's not as pre-flight. They're they're tiny little little uh, balls of protein for something, right? So that that is a critical part of its life cycle. That it you know you don't want to expose it to the risks. Basically, everything wants to kill that that pole. And normally, when I say that, people think about predators. But remember, I just said it can't thermoregulate. And I think that's one of the big things that we miss. If you have nesting cover and then maybe you have brooding cover that's a few hundred yards down the hill or or whatever. And, you know, traversing between those two literally may kill the poults due to exposure. So even if there are no predators involved that's still very high risk because they don't have the type of high quality cover that they need to just to thermoregulate that, you know, it doesn't even include the foraging for insects or predation risk. So I can't stress that enough that having those two things close together is really critical to enhance productivity. So that, Marcus, this is a great point. So you have the relative distance and you threw out mm-hmm. a number, a couple hundred yards. We'll just say, you know, that's, that's probably a reasonable number, 50 to 150 feet, you know, maybe more or mm-hmm. less, something, something that range, but let's talk about the thermal aspect of this. So the, what's the mother's role in that and, and what vegetative qualities in the landscape could help fix this concern? Because once, once she gets that clutch going, the pulse hatch, she's got to get them fed and grown so they can hit that mm-hmm. fly threshold. Exactly. And at some point they're not able to fly very Hi, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so, so the first couple of weeks there, they're, uh, they're just ground, ground birds and they're yeah. easy to get picked off. So what can we do to help, help that scenario? Yeah. So that, that's a great question. And you're exactly right. You know, when they're pre-flight, they're, they're sitting there and most people immediately go to predators, but like that, everything will kill that, that, uh, pulse at that stage. And I, I think, uh, you know, we, we have under 
valued the role of the thermal environment. And that, you know, when I say that, usually most people think of, oh, they get too cold. Well, it can actually go either way. We're probably that they're probably dying more, I would suspect, in your neck of the woods from being from from cold, but uh, probably heat on my side. But the point of all of that is there's a narrow range of temperatures that they can survive in. And one of Chamberlain's studies, it was with Brad Cohen and a couple of other authors, they actually went out and measured all of the places that, that broods were being taken and tried to measure that thermal range. And they found a single-digit proportion of the landscape was actually staying within those bounds where a poult would not literally die from exposure from temperature. And so I, I think it's important for you to think about that in terms of, uh, you know, what the hen's role is. Well, first of all, um, if you've seen, I've posted a video like this before, and I've seen some online, uh, when those pulps are really small, she, she will, you know, for a couple of days at least have them at the nest site, and she basically is protecting them under her wings. Uh, there's pictures online of her doing that even on the limb. So she's playing some direct role uh, in that thermoregulation through that and, and other, you know, protecting them from other things. But really when she's out with the broods brooding, you know, they're foraging around under the plant community, and that's where I think that they're really at risk because the mother's not directly you know, uh, uh, accommodating their, their thermal requirements. So that's where the vegetation structure is key. Is key. And I think uh, based on the literature that we have, you really want a, a forb-dominated community, so just a broadleaf herbaceous plant. That really is the best case scenario to have a plant community that's dominated by that. It can have some, some native warm season clump grasses, you know, like your broom sedge or, or uh, those kinds of plants mixed in, but we really want it to be more dominated by those herbaceous uh, uh, forb plants. So uh, those su- not only support really high insect production, but they also are supporting a thermal environment that stays within those bounds. And there's been some really cool work, and I've got some uh, some work ongoing about this as well. You know, that, that's a, a really great buffer from getting too hot or cold. And not only that, you're also affecting the visibility of those poults from particularly overhead predators, which can be, you know, a primary cause of death at that time as well. So really by providing that high-quality cover, you are accommodating all of those, those risks at the same time when they're most vulnerable, out foraging, you know, uh, along with hand. I think that's really interesting. Um, and I like the ideas of the herbaceous cover and mm-hmm. then obviously the protection of grasses. You, you brought up, you know, some grasses there, orchard grass, Timothy, those are other um, grasses, mm-hmm. clump grasses in our areas that are prevalent. All right, let's, let's go one step further. So, you know, we're, we're talking about brooding and I want to get into which is relevant right now is winter survival. And I know that's a left, left field thing, but it's important to me to kind of describe this because this is a big concern in the northern latitudes because they have limited resources, uh, food resources, mm-hmm. and landscape. In your opinion, and, and I can tell you one thing that I've just seen, I see this year in and year out when they're spreading manure, uh, that's a valuable resource for the uh, turkeys and the landscape. Mm-hmm. And I would consider that supplemental. Um, if that's not the case and there's not a lot of manure or standing corn, you know, what are the environments the turkeys are, are living in, generally speaking, and how can we help them through the winter months? What, what would be a strategy from a habitat standpoint um, that, that would get them uh, a little further down, down the road? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I don't think that's left field at all. You know, a few minutes ago I mentioned your pole to hand ratios mm-hmm. up there, yep. or, and this is pretty common across the, the northern reaches of the species, the pole-to-hen ratios are are actually much better there. So seems like in that earlier stage of life that we were just talking about, uh, there's probably fewer reasons to that, we'll just say, uh, than there are in, you know, maybe some of the southern latitudes. But 
uh, where that is offset is exactly where you're talking about. You have a much harsher winter, and getting through that winter is is uh, much more difficult. I think uh, you know there are a couple of things that are that are really important contributing to that. One, uh, as you alluded to, is food resources and and uh, ensuring that you have food resources available. Like uh, acorns will be a you know one of those principal things that help them to to build fat and and uh, have those reserves and be in good condition through the winter. And I think that's that's one thing that's that's absolutely critical. Uh, you could also potentially supplement that through, you know, things like planting food plots of, of uh, you know, high-density foods like, like the corn that you talked about or other grains. So, uh, you know, those could be important resources as supplementation. But, you know, having places, particularly if you're in a place where you have really high snowfall, I think having some areas, which which may be some of those denser forest areas, uh, where they can escape that that snowfall, uh, you know, or, or have that thermal refuge from exposure to those really cold temperatures, you know, making sure that you have that kind of loafing area available as part of this habitat matrix is probably much more important to to you there. Than, uh, than I would be worried about in, in the, our southern climate where we don't, you know, we're not worried as much about those, those uh, extreme temperatures during the winter. So I think, you know, managing for a diversity of cover types and forest stand conditions can really go a long way. One thing that you mentioned earlier that I think is a good way for you to think through this is you talked about having forest management practices, some sort of variable retention harvesting regime where you are intentionally within stands generating a high degree of variability in the basal area of trees that you remove or retain. And that, that management practice is really important because when you're generating that variation in sunlight penetration, that diversity that you stimulate in plant community conditions in close proximity because they're within the same management unit, it can be really critical. And, you know, it provides quite a, you know, all these resources at once in close proximity. And it may include some of that, you know, loafing area that helps them escape the elements and also, you know, uh, high sunlight areas that might be more appropriate for nesting and brooding all in the same practice. So if you implement that sort of harvesting regime in your timber management, uh, you can really accomplish a lot by not only providing those different resources, but also providing them in close proximity to one another. Yeah, I, I like the way you kind of wrap this up, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of wrap this up in in kind of the ideal, and we're gonna we're gonna let you design really quickly a ideal scenario in our areas. Just utilization preferences, looking all season. If you had, I guess, a third, 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 um, I would say mature hardwood uh, managed with very species ash, oak, hickory. Um, and then we're going to go next. We're going to have kind of maybe a, a shrubland or pastured area that's overgrown and then agriculture, mm-hmm. a third, a third, a third. Explain to me from your perspective, ideal scenario, because a lot of people are trying to create this diversity. Obviously, diversity sure. is king. Um, having specific species, you know, we, we could get in viburnums, choke cherry. I'm just thinking all the different plant species that I want in the landscape mm-hmm. for, you know, deer or turkeys. What is Marcus's ideal layout and set up from a percentage standpoint um, a shrubland could be a component of it and we didn't get into specifics of you know how to manage hay fields uh, fallow areas sure. shrublands right there's a lot of things what plants we want in those areas to create kind of these ideal scenarios but at a mm-hmm. high level what are you trying to create from the diversity standpoint kind of on your landscape to kind of hold i guess hold or attract turkeys maybe all season and, th- and that that was kind of the example yeah. i was just bringing up well yeah i think uh, if you're in that that scenario where you kind of already have it broken up in relatively even uh, situation, kudos to you because you're in a really good situation. <laughs> yep. uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, 
what I normally see is that the majority of the landscape is sunlight limited, and I am looking to increase the level of that to, you know, like the nesting cover, for instance, at least double-digit percentage of the landscape. And if you could do that with the nesting and broody cover, I think you're already getting in pretty good shape there. Okay. Uh, You know, having having uh, some of that area that's more dense forest and maybe you have some that's not even, you know, oak dominated that that can still play a valuable role. I just think it typically is, is too abundant in terms of the majority, you know, it's often the majority of coverage. So typically I'm thinking about reducing that down and that could be through a variety of uh, timber management practices like we've talked about to make sure that you have a, a large proportion of the landscape with relatively high sunlight, even if it's forested. In the fields, at, in the south at least, we typically see either the the uh, food the uh, openings are man- being managed as food plots, and those are often in a variety of species that are not very conducive to turkeys, particularly during nesting and brooding, and or we are seeing those used in some or managed in some sort of non-native mat forming grass, and uh, like you may have fescue or, or orchard grass or something like that there that's more prevalent. So, uh, you know, I'm typically thinking about how to convert those openings into something that's more conducive for reproduction, particularly brood rearing during, you know, that, that late spring, early summer time frame. So if you're, you know, in that situation where you can get into double digit percentages of open ground that is in something that's conducive to brooding in particular, I think that you're going to be in really good shape there uh, with a high productivity, you know, turkey population. So that's not to say that some of it can't be planted in in uh, some sort of grain or even if uh, you have competing interests with deer, you know, uh, planting something that both use really, really well, like uh, some uh, some of your clovers, for instance, could be incorporated into that matrix. But what I normally see missing pretty broadly across the landscape to include in that neck of the woods is that brooding cover. So think about how you can incorporate that into your openings because often those produce the highest quality uh, brooding cover is in you know, associated with your openings where you might otherwise be planting it, uh, you know, completely. Think about setting aside some of that to dedicate to brooding or planting things that, that are more conducive to brooding during that time. All right. And I don't want to, I don't want to skip over this point, Marcus, but there's another aspect to this and I kind of want to end on this. We didn't focus on predator management in this and we we did mm-hmm. that. We did that by design. We want to talk specifically about habitat design and elements sure. When we're coming up with a plan and uh, we think about some of these predators, coyotes is a good example, how they move across Mm -hmm. the landscape. They have a tendency to flow through the landscape kind of on a coarse scale. They like to follow logging roads, path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. One of the strategies, I even employ this word deer in developing fawning habitat, is limiting their accessibility into areas. We talked about that when I was on what we did, the grouse. Uh, the grouse mm-hmm. discussion, how to create escape opportunities and cover and limit accessibility. Um, you know, you brought up, uh, I guess, a point earlier about kind of, you know, the, the hen looking over, you know, some mm-hmm. form of structure, concealing, camouflaging her, et cetera, and, and, and limiting intrusion in those areas. How would you throw that into the design? And I kind of want to end on that because this is kind of more the offensive tactics of things. You know, we're not going to deal with predators, but we're going to offend them in some way where it's uh, they're less apt to get to, you know, the animal we're trying to support in the landscape. So Mm -hmm. uh, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, that's a really good point. And uh, yeah, really good question. Something that's very very strong interest from a lot of people. Most of the time when people think about predator management, they think about removing predators. But what we, the, these practices that we're talking about where you're increasing concealment, uh, when we look at these in studies, we actually get more 
uh, more out of that in terms of reducing predation by providing the animals, in this case turkeys, the opportunity to escape. So that comes through a a variety of ways, one through concealment, uh, but also in some situations with particularly with like nesting cover that reduces, if you have high quality nesting cover, it might reduce the use by, by coyotes because it's less conducive to their coursing, uh, coursing behavior. So, you know, you're exactly right. Developing some of these, these higher density, high quality nesting areas will reduce their use. But another key element to that that I don't think is as intuitive is you also are providing a high degree of alternative resources for the predator. Uh, So for example, developing that high quality structure also makes a more productive small mammal community. And, you know, coyotes will uh, obviously eat small mammals and instead of hens. Right. So that's one thing that you could benefit from it. Another really interesting study I was just at a conference and and uh, they laid this out. It was pretty interesting with coyotes. They showed that if you you increase the fruit production and the understory, fruits are really easy to catch, it turns out, uh, for a coyote. So uh, you actually could see diet switching of the coyote to fruit and insects. And uh, and less focus on some of our prey species like like deer fawns and and uh, turkeys on the nest. So, you know, that's another tangible outcome that you see from these types of habitat management approaches, where you're you're making it harder for them to travel in those locations and also find the hen. But you're also providing them a lot of other really high quality resources to choose as an alternative. And when you collectively put those together, we see a much larger effect size on predation, by re, you know, reducing predation on turkeys or, or any other game species uh, that uses these by the, the accumulation of those different things. We would see more reduction in predation than you actually see typically when we study predator removal itself. So with that being said, there, there are studies showing uh, with a variety of game bird species that if you get this habitat work in place and you really have knocked that out where you have high quality cover for all of these different aspects, adding the, the predator trapping in with it can give you an additional you know, bump in, in uh, recruitment, but really... Uh, the literature is pretty clear that providing these components and, you know, together like that is, has this cascading effect on different factors that are reducing predation risk. Very interesting. The, uh, and, and you brought up the point earlier about the, the scat that, well, we, if you look at animal scat, that's, that's a good way to diagnose, mm-hmm. you know, what they're eating, what their biome sure. is, is is taking in. So I know you, I know, I know, Will, I've listened to him on, on your podcast. He seems like he's the poop yeah. man. Um, yeah, man. <laughs> he's, he's big into analyzing scat and, and to pay attention to that, you know, and recognize that some of, some of the coyotes, for example, here, I, you're paying attention to that in the landscape is what's the consistency, what, what's in that scat. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'll see the diets, you know, shift big time. Uh, sure. These are highly fruited areas, you know, we've crab apples, you know, mm-hmm. blackberries, raspberries across the landscape, you know, they're, they're eating those at an all time high during cer- certain points of the year, their diet shifts. Sure. So, you know, their preferences are going to shift, but those early, I would say those early brooding series periods, you know, they're, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're very, f- the fruit is not available. I mean, there, there could be some standing mm-hmm. fruit, but likely unlikely in those cases, uh, June, July, you know, you start to get into some of the, the, the various yeah. plants and it's thinking about what those plants are in your landscape that does reduce, you know, that predator prey relationship as well, because I mean, th- there's alternatives and, and again, the resources on the landscape become meaningful. Hence we go right back to habitat layout design yeah. setup 
considering what resources are in the landscape and what magnitude and what richness. And that's really critical to kind of, you know, thinking about design and layout. The other thing I want to just comment on really quickly is that vertical diversity, uh, uneven age. We've talked about forest management on this podcast quite a bit. I've got my opinion on Mm -hmm. how to lay out forest stands and and how to kind of set things up, but kind of that vertical diversity where you've got a lot of tree height variation. And as a result Mm -hmm. of that, you know, the understory plants kind of respond really, really well. And so a lot of times we're thinking about from a timber management stand, kind of horizontal diversity, um, it, sure. those become kind of, I would almost say monocultures and we're talking about polycultures and it's really mm-hmm. important for us to kind of develop those on the landscape and diversity adding, you know, if there's seeps, how do you, you know, how do you benefit, you know, your, your wildlife as it relates to seeps and the related plant life hawthorn comes right to my mind, thinking about mm-hmm. kind of those crab, apple, you know, hawthorn type plants in and around those areas. How heavy are you going to cut in those areas? Usually 20, 30%. What's the gap between your stream management zones to shrubland areas and, and just kind of thinking the layout and structure of everything. This is where you start to juxtapose all these different resource types and create the kind of ultimate design. And you can get really, yeah. really technical in this stuff, Marcus. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of where my business is. But when it comes to yeah. turkeys, this is, <laughs> this is next level stuff, man. And I, I appreciate you taking the time with me today. We didn't talk about prescribed fire, herbicide, you know, uh, thinning tactics after, you know, you take down some of these areas. How do you manage them over time? But there's there's mm-hmm. a lot that goes into kind of setting up your landscape for success for turkeys and you yeah, know, result exactly. in other, other species that, that we didn't hit on today. So I appreciate all your knowledge and input because uh, I think this is extremely valuable. And I think you can uh, resource yourself out on your property and you run out of space, so you got to buy more land. That's uh, that's the beauty of this thing. <laughs> yeah, that's what we we all desire to do. That right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for the time. Um, I want to promote your podcast. You know, there's we have a lot of listeners on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's Wild Turkey Science, and it's available any of the major places that you might find a podcast. It's also available on YouTube. So, yeah, I really appreciate you giving a shout out to that. Yeah, and, no. and thanks for having me. It's been really fun talking to you about this stuff. Yeah, this is great. I can't wait. Um, hopefully we can have you on again. We can talk about something else, but I, I, I love the podcast. It's awesome. It's, uh, you know, we've, we've get, you know, we focus on deer on this podcast, but I think it's good to, you know, shout out to, you know, other, other, you know, other animals that, that, that are important for us, especially ones that we want to harvest. So um, I appreciate yeah. you taking the time out of your day today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. All right. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Marcus. See ya. See ya. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.